Welcome to Students Over Systems. I'm your host, Ginny Gentles. At Students Over Systems, we talk with the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the educational industrial complex, the pernicious influence of teachers' unions, and a bit about culture wars. For this important discussion, we're joined by school choice evangelist, Corey DeAngelis. Corey is an extraordinarily influential advocate of school choice. In fact, he's been called the most effective school choice advocate since Milton Friedman. Corey is a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children, a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, the executive director at Educational Freedom Institute, and a board member at Liberty Justice Center. He holds a PhD in education policy from the University of Arkansas, and somehow he manages to balance publishing in-depth research with writing regular op-eds for publications like the Wall Street Journal and a non-stop Twitter or X attack on school choice opponents. Corey DeAngelis, thanks for joining us. Hey, Jenny, thanks for having me. Let's start with the basics. How do you define education freedom? Well, I would, I would define school choice as any initiative that allows the funding to follow the student to the education provider that works best for them. Um, so education more freedom more dro- broadly could be parents having uh, a say in their kids' education. Um, and I think the best way to secure the right for parents to direct the upbringing of their own children would be to allow the funding to follow the students so that they can actually make a choice. Um, so I've talked about school choice in terms of funding students, not systems, applying the same logic that we do with initiatives like Pell Grants for higher ed. Uh, you can take the money to a public or private university. It doesn't have to be a residentially assigned option. With pre-K that the Democrats support, you can have the funding follow the student to any private pre-K provider of your choosing, even religious providers. Same logic applies with food stamps, Medicaid vouchers, uh, uh, Section 8 housing vouchers, and so on and so forth. It's only when it comes to K-12 education do union-bought politicians oppose education freedom because they want to cement the status quo. They want to protect the monopoly, keep those campaign contributions flowing from Randy Weingarten and the teachers' unions. But it's a lot of it's 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 been exposed, and people are uh, seeing it for what it is and calling for education freedom more so than ever. Right. Well, I'm definitely one of those families that benefits from education freedom. Uh, Rather than sending my children to the residentially assigned public schools, I choose to send them to nearby private schools. So they're still local schools. They just happen to be private and free from the grip of, of the unions. You have a book coming out soon, and the book description says that you equip readers with the ability to make sure the potent forces of the educational industrial complex don't regain their footing. What's the industrial, sorry, the educational industrial complex? It's the teachers unions fighting over and over again to trap other people's kids in their failing government schools. You look at Randy Weingarten's union, the American Federation of Teachers, for example, over 99.9% of their campaign contributions in 2022 and 2024 went to Democrats as opposed to Republicans or independents. It's a taxpayer funded uh, nonstop money laundering scheme, and it should be illegal, where you had the funding going from the teachers unions to the Democratic campaign coffers back to the government schools staffed by the teachers unions, and then that money again goes back into the Democratic campaign com- uh, coffers. It's, it's, it's a form of money laundering that ought to be illegal, and it's why so many Democrats in elected office, even though their voters support it, Democrats, Republicans, and independents on the ground 
the Democrat politicians oppose education freedom because of power dynamics as opposed to logic. You can point out so many logical inconsistencies with Democrat politicians supporting funding students directly with everything else except for K-12 education. And there's so much hypocrisy with themselves uh, in their own personal lives, sending their own kids to private school. You have the Chicago Teachers Union boss this uh, last year was revealed that she called school choice racist just the year before. She called private schools segregation academies. And then lo and behold, just last year, she switched her kid from the failing dumpster fire uh, Chicago government-run school system, pulled him out of there, and sent him to a private Catholic school, the same kind of schools that she called racist just the year before. So it's it's so hypocritical, but it's because they're their their uh their positions of power depend on them being hypocrites and and that's the problem but hopefully as more people expose these logical inconsistencies and, and hypocrisy from the teachers union mob bosses you'll have uh more democrats defect on the issue and start to listen to parents the kids union as opposed to the teachers union and slight digression here let's talk a little bit more about that Chicago Teachers Union mob boss, Stacey Davis-Gates. Is that her name? Yeah, I think there was an article that just came out. I didn't really cover this one yet, but something leaked where she said you got to punch your principal in the face or something. I don't know if maybe she was being figurative about it. I haven't looked into it, but I did see a headline from about Stacey Davis-Gates on this um this quote that came out, apparently, CPS, the Chicago Public School System. Um, right, well, the well, the principal uh, uh, the principal took action because this was a public school, elementary school principal who had been threatened with violence because the Chicago Teachers Union uh, president or mob boss had, had said to her, I think she used the term like my Stevenson brothers and sisters, you should... Um, you should punch him. So we're not talking about kind of a rational actors, and we're certainly not talking about the um, the second grade classrooms, the beloved teacher uh, classroom teachers that that we remember from when we were children, or the, for those of us who are parents who we might have now. We love our classroom teachers who are doing a good job for our students. Uh, we are concerned by the power hungry. Um, union leaders. Okay. Well, they, so, they've gotten overly political too. I mean, a year, about a year ago, I woke up to what I thought was a Babylon B headline. Uh, I thought I was having a nightmare. It was neither of those things. It was actually a tweet from Randy Weingarten, chief mob boss at the AFT. And she was tweeting that she was in Ukraine at the front lines to assess the situation. I was like, what the hell is the teachers union boss from America doing in Ukraine? just as the nation's report card scores were coming out showing decades of learning loss. I guess she was trying to avoid any accountability whatsoever, but hadn't the Ukrainian kids already suffered enough? I mean, you already destroyed our government school system. Don't bring those practices over there as well. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just goes to show you though, that they're focused more on political priorities as opposed to actually educating the kids in the classroom. I think during that time, we had found out that the U.S. history proficiency rates were about 13% among students in the U.S. I mean, it's just a total dumpster fire. 
Right. And that same union, the American Federation of Teachers, has put out a statement the week that we're recording this about uh, Israel and, and Gaza. So not on learning loss, chronic absenteeism, the ongoing challenges that we're facing in the K-12 system, but on uh, foreign affairs. Didn't, didn't Randy have a, the is Israel flag in her bio? I know she has the Ukraine flag in her bio before <laughs> the American flag, of course, because yeah. you've got a virtue signal against your own country. Uh, but then she, I, I believe she had the Israeli flag in there as well, but I looked the other day and it's gone. So, mm. but the Ukrainian flag's still there. Oh goodness. I'm sorry to hear she that. You must've got pressure from her members yeah. saying you can't, you can't do this. Yeah. They're definitely uh, radical groups within both of the large unions, AFT and NEA that are pressuring the unions. In fact, there's an educators for Palestine within the NEA that has called on that union to withdraw their endorsement of president Biden. Until he calls for a ceasefire. Oh, I love, I love when they eat their own. I mean, who else are they going to endorse? Are they going to endorse Trump? Probably not. <laughs> well, I mean, so um, they, I don't think they really thought this one through, but um, it yeah. really just goes to show you they're not really all that worried about math, reading, and writing. Some people get into the profession to control the minds of other people's children with their own worldview. I mean, the, the school system is a way to raise people's children, and some people have infiltrated that system haven't been interested in academics and have instead uh, desired to, to, to have their, their leftist worldview inculcated in that system. That's, that's a huge problem. And I think it's why we see so much pushback to bills that generally come from the right to control uh, the curriculum to not have politically biased um, subjects in the classroom. So have, seeing that knee-jerk reaction and seeing these kinds of letters to the to the unions to withdraw support from Biden for these kinds of things. It just it um, I think it really exposes the problem we're talking about. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about the exposure work that you've done in in recent years, which was really unprecedented. There are those of us who've been toiling for decades to advocate for school choice. And then you kind of burst on the scene, Corey. And one of the first things that you were doing, um, in addition to this really in-depth and complex education policy research that you do, uh, was exposing that these people, union leaders, but also politicians are sending their children to elite private schools or just, you know, maybe even just the regular old Catholic private school down the street, or they benefited from private school education, um, but they are adamantly opposed to school choice. So uh, you've been exposing that for, for years now, whenever anybody speaks up and says that they are opposed to education freedom or giving families options, you point out that they themselves took advantage of an option. What lessons have you learned from your work on that front? Hey, this is research too. It doesn't take 50 pages <laughs> to write the article like some of my other uh, reports. I mean, my first study linked the Milwaukee voucher program to crime reduction, and all, that's all important stuff too. But politicians respond to sound bites, and they don't respond to logic all that much. So you better be able to convey your message or your research in tweets. I think that's why Twitter has been so important uh, for for myself and advocating for school choice. It kind of forces you to learn how to convey your information in sound bites, and that's really beneficial in the political realm because if you're explaining, you're losing. And if you can figure out a way to put the other side on defense, I think you'll start winning. And I think that's what has been so important about just the four words, fund students, not systems. The other side's in a weird predicament. If you want to argue, then you have to argue why we should uh, fund the system and not the student. And also at the same time, while you're doing that, it's going to reveal that you prioritize 
the institution as opposed to the kid. But I think this, I think this all started when um, the biggest fish that I fried to begin with before I started doing this more often was Elizabeth Warren. She uh, lied about it on video too, but I went on to Ancestry.com and found that she sent her kid Alex Warren, who at the time was about 43 years of age. Uh, so this is much past his, his years of K-12 education, but he was at a private school called Kirby Hall in Austin, where she was uh, teaching at the time at, the, at UT Austin. And she responded to a candidate survey because she was running in the 2019 Democratic primary for president. And they had asked all the candidates, you know, where did you go to school? Where did you send your kids to school? Most people, either they didn't answer any of the questions or they, most of them did answer both questions. But Elizabeth Warren was the uh, little, little odd because she answered the first question and said, I went to public schools in Norman, Oklahoma. But then in the next question, it was no comment. So that really kind of made it pretty obvious. She probably sent one of her kids to private school because she, if she sent them both to public school, she would have been bragging about it like she did with her own public school education. And so Ancestry.com revealed the yearbook of him at Kirby Hall. She didn't know it came out. I had already written about it in the New York Post. I tweeted about it. But at a candidate forum in Atlanta, there was a black mother and, and grandmother who confronted her named Sarah Carpenter. And they she basically just said, look, I, I read somewhere you sent your kid to private school. I just want the same kind of opportunities you had. She was calling for school choice. And Elizabeth Warren quickly and quietly responded, um, no, I sent my kids to public schools. So it was a false denial, a lie it added to the whole Pocahontas thing, her lying about her ancestry. And um, that didn't really help her out all that much in the primaries. Um, but fast forward to today, you have Joe Biden's a hypocrite on school choice, went to private school, sent his kid to private school. Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, I was calling him out on this. Doug Mastriano, his opponent in the midterms in 2022, um, when they were running for the, the governor's race, Doug Mastriano started calling Shapiro a hypocrite for sending his kids to private school and, and attending private school. Well, Josh Shapiro, he took the smart um, move and said, I'm going to take this argument away from my opponent and I'm going to support school choice. He changed his education platform right before the election and include included an explicit form of private school choice called the Lifeline Scholarships. And uh, he even went on Fox News in 2023, reiterating his support. He ultimately caved to the teachers unions, but that's, a not, that's a, another um, story altogether. Um, but the point is he felt compelled to, he, he felt compelled to signal support at least to the public that he supported uh, education freedom. That's good news in the end for supporters of school choice and families that politicians, even if they ultimately end up voting for it from the Democratic Party, if they're at least feeling pressured at the moment to signal support, then that's good news. And if if they lie about that support, that's going to hurt them in the future. Um, uh, and maybe you'll get a Republican in 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 that seat instead. But well, we had Shapiro, good news out of out of Pennsylvania with an, an increase in the funding for the existing scholarship program in the Pennsylvania. Yeah, Department. so we did have that. We didn't have, you know, um, the the whole enchilada that we wanted. But, you know, that's 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 a good step. J.B. Pritzker also felt compelled to, to say he supported a program he vowed to eliminate, um, you know, five five or so years ago. Uh, he ultimately didn't save the program. He said he'd sign a bill in Illinois to save it if it got to his desk, probably knowing it would never get to his desk because the House and Senate were both controlled by uh, uh, Democrats, obviously. 
but this it's like every day. I mean, I get surprised now if it's not a hypocrite. So like in Tennessee, there's a big push this year. Governor Bill Lee has a, a, a proposal for universal school choice. We're running out of states to, to pass universal school choice, but we're still seeing a lot of momentum. Louisiana's probably going to do it this year. We're seeing Governor Kay Ivey in Alabama for the first time making uh, explicit support for an education savings account program. Georgia's having momentum as well with Governor Kemp for the first time in history, a Georgia governor calling for private school choice in the state of the state address in January last month. Um, and those are just a few examples. But in Tennessee, you have Heidi Campbell, a, a senator out there. She went to private school. She sent her kid to private school. And now every day she's made it her mission to fight against school choice. In Texas, in my home state, you have the Trey Martinez Fisher, the the chair of the House Democrats, actually. He went to private school, sends both of his kids to private school at the moment. And then he's been railing against school choice for, for others every single day. Um, so I, I think it's going to happen in Tennessee and Texas. It's another subject we can get into, but the reason that it died in the house was because 21 so-called Republicans voted with all the Democrats to block school choice after it already passed the Senate easily 18 to 13 last year. And, um, only 16 of those 21 Republicans who voted against school choice are running for reelection. The other five probably saw the, the writing on the wall and, the, the remaining 16 all have primary opponents who support school choice. So there's probably going to be a lot of political consequences for them. My group, the American Federation for Children, has endorsed a bunch of their challengers. I believe 12 or 13 of them out of the 16. And Governor Abbott has endorsed a bunch, and so has Ted Cruz. And hopefully we can get a new Texas house and Texas can get universal school choice finally. Well, we definitely saw that as a success story in Iowa when Governor Kim Reynolds got behind candidates that were supportive of school choice. And then the next go around. She got a new house. Yeah. New house and successful passage of of their uh, universal school choice program. One thing that I see on Twitter when when you are exposing these people who send their children to private school or went to private school, their defense is that, well, my parents paid for it or I paid for it. I don't want the taxpayers to pay for it. how do you respond to that? We're already paying for it. I mean, we spend about $20,000 per student per year in the government-run school system, according to National Center for Education Statistics data. This would just allow families to take that money to an alternative provider. And what's interesting is the same people who vote against school choice and say it's okay for when they do it for their families, they all of a sudden, uh, they, they love spending any taxpayer dollar they can, whether it's free college, federal... Uh, student loan bailouts and having taxpayers cover that. They, they they want free pre-K, which nothing is free. Someone's paying for it. The taxpayer is. And all of these things that they call for are an additional burden to the taxpayer. But then when it comes to K-12 education, they all of a sudden become staunch fiscal conservatives and they want to help tell everybody else to pull themselves up by their bootstraps only when it comes to K-12 education. But when it comes to food, healthcare, higher ed, pre-K, uh, they want to have exorbitant taxpayer expenses. And what's interesting with K-12 is it actually saves taxpayer dollars at the same time because the scholarship amount tends to be about half of what we spend in the government-run schools. In Texas, the proposal was about $10,000 per student, whereas the government schools in Texas spend about $15,700 per student, about 50% more than what the scholarship 
uh, would have been. And so uh, it's just, it's just, it, they, they want you to believe they're all of a sudden these fiscal conservative hawks that they're not, and they're not. And the other part of their argument is they'll say, I paid for it myself, but school choice, when it comes in the form of a scholarship, that's going to defund the public school. And I'm not doing that because I'm paying out of pocket. But what they don't want you to understand is the financial impact on the school district is the same, whether you're paying out of pocket or whether you um, have the, the funding follow the student in the form of a voucher or scholarship, because public schools are funded based on enrollment counts. Mm -hmm. So if your school had a thousand kids and you pull your kid out of that public school and send them to a private school, it still has 999 kids, whether you're paying out of pocket or through um, a scholarship. And so that public school is going to lose a bunch of money either way. So they're defunding their public school too, uh, in the sense that that, that school is going to receive less uh, funding attached to fewer students. I, I wonder where they're going to direct their rage when they realize that de enrollment is declining in public schools, in part because parents saw what was going on during during the COVID closures and decided to pull their children out and find alternatives. But it's largely driven by demographic changes. People had fewer babies starting in 2008, and you've been losing public school enrollment at over 1% a year, which accumulates to a significant enrollment drop. So we're in a essentially a baby bust, and there are going to be fewer children driving up that per pupil enrollment funding. So I, I don't, when they're, they direct all their rage at school choice programs, but really like the who are they going to be the, mad at? The people who decided right. not to have babies. Um, and I, and I, I do think we need to like wake up to the realization that school choice is going to be attacked for this declining public school enrollment for all of it, even though some of it's demographically fueled, and we need to be explaining just how much of it is demographically fueled and and uh, wish them luck at, at getting mad at that reality. Right. They're going to take all their their hatred out towards school choice and not, and not people voting yeah. with their feet for other reasons. It's okay when rich people uh, pay it out of pocket to, to go to private school and, and have fewer kids enrolled in their public school that way. But when Lower income families get a choice. They they shriek about it because they know that they can use the political system to trap those kids in their failure factories we call public schools. So uh, they only shriek when they, they think that they can get their way. Um, you don't see them calling to make private schooling illegal. Um, I'm glad that they don't do that. Some of the socialists do. Uh, I've actually pointed out a couple of times that, well, you're okay with uh, people choosing private grocery stores. And some of them have come back from the Democratic Socialists of America saying, well, no, the, 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 actually, private grocery stores are a problem, too. We, we need the government to run. I think the Chicago mayor, um, Brandon Johnson, had a proposal for government-run grocery stores recently, too. I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I gave them too many ideas, and they're actually running with them. Um, but hopefully most people see that uh, supporting pri private grocery store choice um, makes you a hypocrite for not supporting uh uh, school choice for private schools when it comes to K-12 education. All right. One more question about the teachers unions. I just want to kind of give you an open platform. What do you think needs to be done about the teachers unions and the pernicious influence that they have on K-12 education right now? Yeah, you can outlaw public sector unions. Um, that could be a, a good solution, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So I think the better solution 
is a more realistic one, which is school choice. This would provide accountability to the union mob bosses for doing the wrong thing. At some point, you think, I thought it would have happened by now that Randy Weingarten would shut up with their political BS and start to actually push for uh, education policies that actually educate kids as opposed to indoctrinating them. It hasn't gotten there yet, but maybe if you have more families voting with their feet, if you have a uh, let's see what happens in a few years. I mean, these universal programs just uh, started to pass over about a couple of years ago. Now we have one out of every five states have universal school choice already, and more are on deck in 2024 uh, to expand education freedom. But you would think that the more bottom-up accountability you have, if, if families can actually go to the school board meeting and instead of getting their mic cut off, instead of getting labeled as a domestic terrorist for pushing back and uh, and trying to voice your opinion in a public forum, maybe instead of getting silenced and bullied by the union mob bosses, the teachers unions will actually say, hold up, we're going to lose some union dues at some point if more families are able to vote with their feet. And instead of um, demonizing them for disagreeing with us, Maybe we should listen to our customers this time. And then so then maybe you'll see, uh, like in 2019, when the NEA, the largest teachers union, voted against a resolution to realign their union to be about student learning and, and, and their education. Maybe they won't vote down that measure going forward. Maybe they'll actually support it because uh, they'll see it's financially beneficial to do so. I don't think they're going to change their game. They're, they're, they're going to continue to try to signal that they're supporting their members as opposed to their customers if they have no incentive to to listen to their customers. So just like any other private industry, if if you know uh, someone can go to a different restaurant, um, if you have food, if you're poisoning food, uh, if you're giving customers food poisoning, if you know that they can go somewhere else, maybe you'll think about um, cooking things the right way or uh, not uh, serving expired dishes uh, to your customers. So I think that's that's the way um, things have to change with the teachers unions. I don't, I don't know any other way besides making them illegal, uh, which is not, uh, politically feasible in the short run. Uh, well, I, I'm for ending automatic payroll, uh, deduction for, for the dues. Let's defund them. Oh yeah. And Florida did this right. Florida, yeah. Florida changed the default, which that's a good, so yeah, there's some things you can do at the margins to hit them at the flanks. Yeah. Whereas in, in a lot of systems, the, the money already comes out of the teacher's paychecks and they don't have to opt into that. They have to mm -hmm. opt out and most people just kind of leave it. And so mathematically, if you if you reverse that to being opt in and give parent and uh, give uh, the teachers a choice each year, then mathematically you're, you're going to end up just from changing the default with fewer uh, teachers voluntarily entering um, the contract to, to, to pay the, the union money each year. They'll have to reassess too, and say, "Look, if you're, if I'm a conservative teacher, and you're, you know, uh, aligning with Planned Parenthood groups, and if you're pushing CRT, and if you're railing against my preferred presidential political candidate, then maybe I won't want to send you my money anymore." Yeah, not just aligning, Corey. There are yeah, there are outright chapters that represent Planned Parenthood workers. Like AFT is not just representing teachers; they represent healthcare workers and nurses, and now Planned Parenthood staff in in some states. So I would imagine that some teachers would, if they became aware of that, would think twice about giving their dues to that kind of organization. All right, uh, quick question. 
uh, this could be its own podcast, but um, culture wars, you have encouraged people to lean in. There's some disagreement within the school choice movement on that approach. Uh, What's your reasoning for that? Well, I think we've seen so much winning. I mean, we're we're winning so much on the school choice front right now. I'm almost getting tired of winning, Jenny. Uh, Just kidding, actually. We we have a a long way to go. We have four out of five states remaining that don't have universal school choice. But the momentum is hard to overstate because we didn't have any universal school choice states where everybody was eligible. It was more incremental reform before where it was just you know, families based on lower income status, or if you had a student with a special need, then you could use the program. And we kind of expanded those slowly over time for the past few decades. But then we've kind of gone from zero to 100 real quick in the past couple of years, having 10 states just say, you know what, everybody should be eligible. And um, everybody's going to be able to have that right to take their kids funding to the provider of their choosing, whether it's a public private charter or home-based education option. And I think part of that was because the teachers unions overplayed their hand. Yes, they held children's education hostage to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from taxpayers, which it worked for them. They received $190 billion in so-called COVID relief since March of 2020. And the unintended benefit, however, was that the families got to see a little bit of what was going on in the classroom through remote learning, which we should have called remotely learning because not a lot of learning was going on. But families got to see another dimension of school quality that is arguably more important than anything that can be captured by a standardized test, which is whether school's curriculum aligns with families' values. So some parents were unhappy with critical race theory. Some parents are happy with uh, gender ideology uh, to this day. And some of the schools just have a leftward bias politically. You you see some schools just outwardly against uh, uh, President Trump, for example, or or other politicians that they disagree with. And they're uh, basically indoctrinating kids in ways that don't align with a lot of the family's values. And so conservative parents were um, were pretty upset about this. And if you look at the latest Gallup polling, they found an all-time low in support for the public school system overall. And among conservatives, I believe it was about only 9% of conservatives said that they had um, confidence in the public school system. So that it just hit rock bottom uh, support. And it had to have something to do with um, the, the school's curriculum not aligning with conservative parents' values. And I think the best solution to that is from the bottom up, allowing families to vote with their feet to schools that do align with their values. That would give the public schools a competitive incentive to not get into a lot of um, indoctrination and they they should just focus on math, reading, and writing. That should be the competitive response. Uh, But at the end of the day, we have families, millions of families across the country stuck in a one-size-fits-all government-run school system that by definition will never meet the individual various needs of diverse families. It's in the current system, you're assigned to a school based on where you lived. And it's not even that a majority gets to inflict their will on a minority of people in that system. It's even worse than that. It's usually a minority special interest, the teachers union, that gets to inflict their progressive radical ideology will on the, the, the minds of other people's children, which is a huge problem. And the only way out of that, uh, well, one, you want to con- conservatives might want to fight to take over the school boards, but it doesn't get you out of the problem of one size fits all. You're always, you're still going to have uh, disagreement about what the curriculum ought to be. It's a never ending game of whack-a-mole trying to figure out what this one size fits all system should look like. Instead, we should be able to choose for our own kids and raise our own kids 
with our own values. Um, and we shouldn't be able to control other people's children and their up upbringing. And that's what happens in the current system. Um, all right. So, so Corey, I want to wrap up with our typical final question, which is what is the school choice myth that bothers you the most and that you want to dispel today? And of course, we've been tackling school choice myths throughout this discussion. So what's left? What do you want to tackle? Well, one, one, I, I want to, before go, moving on, I want to point out that, yes, I think we should lean into the culture war when it comes to school choice, because for a long time, we kind of tried to pretend it was bipartisan when it wasn't. And we tried to get a lot of Democrats to vote for it by messaging school choice for lower income families, uh, for it being more of an equalizer, which all of these things are true. It disproportionately benefits the least advantage. It's true that um, it, uh, it is an equalizer because of the assigned school system that we have that is, is uh, rife with inequality. But that didn't really win over Democrat votes because Democrats, we were thinking we're going to listen to logic and, and morality, but politicians listen to power more so than anything else. And so by making it a left-leaning thing and, and trying to pretend it was bipartisan when it wasn't, well, we didn't really get any of the Democrat votes, and we probably lost a lot of the Republican votes because the Republicans didn't see it as a Republican thing. They didn't have to vote for it if it was supposed to be a bipartisan thing. And so we didn't see school choice advance in blue states and we didn't see it advance in many red states either. But now it has become a conservative GOP litmus test issue where primary voters are supporting school choice more than ever on the Republican side, 88% support on the latest ballot in Texas, up nine points since they lasted it in 2018. It'll be on the ballot again in 2024, so that'll be interesting to watch. But uh, the same trend happened on the ballot in Georgia, for example, from 72% support to 79% support in 2022. And so uh, more that the Republicans have seen this as a litmus test issue the more we've seen the red states actually go all in on school choice. And it has become a political winner, uh, whereas 76% of the candidates supported by my organization, the American Federation for Children, and our state affiliates won their races in 2022. And we targeted 69 incumbents, the hardest thing to do in state politics, in state legislatures, and we took out 40 of them. So that was a huge win. You saw what happened in Iowa that you mentioned earlier. Governor Reynolds backed the union, uh, the, the school choice supporters and got a new house. And um, I think that's also a good reason to lean into the culture war because it's it's led us to have success uh, over the past few years on the school choice front. Now, getting to the, uh, there's so many myths. I actually have a, uh, uh, it's back there somewhere, school choice myths at the Cato Institute that I co-edited with Neil McCluskey. That's um goes over some of the biggest myths in the school choice debate. I also wrote about, um, that's kind of long for legislators. So I've, I've also put it on the AFC uh, website. If you just Google school choice myths, you'll find on the American Federation for Children website, bullet point responses. Here are the nine biggest myths in the school choice debate. And here are like five or so uh, bullet point rebuttals to the myth with sources and, and, and data to back up your claims and that's what most politicians want. They want to be able to win on the House floor or the, the Senate floor when uh, they're getting into an argument. And if you're 
if you give them a book, that's that's going to take a, a lot longer to explain um, to your opponents. And then um, you, you need sound bites to win these these messaging wars. But uh, the biggest one you'll hear in state capitals, out of all of them, the the reason that every politician basically votes against school choice is they'll say the teachers union talking point that school choice will defund the public schools. And the quick response to that is a rhetorical question, actually, why would giving families a choice defund public schools if they're doing such a great job? And then the typically your opponent will just stay silent for a second or they'll pivot to something else, or maybe they'll start screaming because their, their brain doesn't know how to handle the rhetorical question because the obvious answer is they, they, they must think that the school's not doing a good job. And that's a reason to have school choice, not to prevent families from having school choice. Um, so their solution is to trap kids in those schools that aren't working for them. That's that's a huge red flag. The other explanation is a, a more nefarious one that they don't want to say out loud. Sometimes they do, and it blows up in their face. They'll say, well, um, yes, it'll defund the schools. They're going to choose something else, but it's because these are low-income families. They don't know any better. It's not actually that the private schools are better. They're being tricked by advertising and they can't really decide for their own kids. Even though I send my own kids to private school, these uh, the masses can't figure it out, which is touch, such a paternalistic argument. It's an elitist argument uh, when in reality, parents know and care more about their kids' educational needs than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. They have the more on-the-ground knowledge and incentive to get those decisions right for their own kids than anybody else, certainly more than politicians who don't even know their children's names. Uh, the other response I had to this is that school choice doesn't defund public schools. If anything, public schools defund families. School choice initiatives just return the money to the hands of the rightful owners, the parents and their children, or at least the intended beneficiaries of that funding. And they can choose to take their money to the public schools that they want. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school. Uh, but for real this time, unlike with your doctor and and if you look at the evidence, 26 of the 29 existing studies on the topic find that private school choice competition leads to better outcomes in the public schools. So school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. It doesn't hurt them. It doesn't dismantle them. It actually makes them better. And the burden of proof should be on those fear mongering about school choice, uh, saying that the sky is falling and that everything's going to close and everything, everybody's going to lose their jobs. That doesn't actually happen. They don't have any evidence for this. This is why they never provide any. If we've had school choice for decades, expanding in, in over 30 states, if the evidence was there and, and schools were closing in mass, it would actually, they'd be able to cite it. They can't though. And I think a lot of even defenders of the status quo will admit there are some competitive benefits uh, from competitive pressures in the public school system. So um, the other response is something we hit on earlier that the public schools spend about $20,000 per student per year. The vouchers about half of that uh, nationwide would probably be about $10,000 per student per year on average. Well, if you're only losing about half of your funding and you get to keep thousands of dollars for students, you're no longer educating mathematically, you're going to end up with higher per student revenues and expenditures than before. Just imagine if you stop shopping at Walmart for whatever reason and you wanted to go to Safeway or Trader Joe's and Walmart got to keep half of your grocery funding each week, they'd actually be pretty happy about that. They'd be thrilled. That's a, That would be a good deal for Walmart. And I would argue this would be a good deal for public schools who get to keep thousands of dollars for students they're no longer educating each year. 
Corey, we're going to need to record another conversation because I feel like we have more myths that we need to to dispel. But I so so appreciate the conversations that we've recorded over at the Independent Women's Network on these topics in the past. And I appreciate you joining us here today on Students Over Systems. And Corey, thank you for your relentless school choice evangelism. You've made such an impact and such a difference. Yeah, thank you, Jenny. Uh, Happy to join you again soon, hopefully. Maybe we could do a whole episode on school choice myths. It'll take five hours. (laughs) Let's Uh, do it. A marathon. All right. Well, we hope listeners found today's conversation informative and encouraging. If you enjoyed this episode of Students Over Systems, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to share this episode with your friends. To learn more about the work of the IWF Education Freedom Center, please visit iwf.org EFC. Thank you for listening to Students Over Systems. Until next time, keep celebrating education freedom and brighter futures.